Previously on Survived by One, Tom Odell endured the appeals process, and the death penalty came under fire. Survived by One, The Life and Mind of a Family Mass Murderer by Robert E. Hanlon with Thomas V. Odell. Episode 18, Moratorium and Commutation. I began painting as a method of meditation. I also began to try to educate myself psychologically in order to try to understand myself Introspection was new to me. I tried to figure out why certain things took place and why I did what I did. I read about family dynamics, dysfunctional families, and guilt. I read Freud and Erickson and anything else I could get my hands on to help me understand myself and to try to come to terms with my crime, which haunted me and compelled many of my closest relatives to loathe me to the point of praying for my execution. In the wake of the moratorium, Tom Odell began a long period of self-examination, as well as self-expression. While the moratorium was a glimmer of hope, his future was still uncertain. The change in his perspective on his past and his future was reflected in an interview he gave to Punk Planet, a small independent magazine, in an article entitled Finding Life on Death Row, in April of 2001. His interviewer, clearly sympathetic towards Tom's situation, imagined he would be a lot angrier but the time Odell had already spent in prison had taught him some valuable lessons. It's hard waking up every day knowing you're going to die, especially by the hand of the state. I try to stay focused on other things. I try to stay in shape, listen to music, watch TV, paint, draw. I just try to keep very, very busy and make sure that time passes. Where is anger going to get you? It's not going to get you anywhere but in more trouble. You have to divert your anger into other, more productive things. If you're an artist, maybe you want to put your anger onto a piece of canvas or a piece of paper, or maybe you want to work it out in a workout. With age comes maturity. You're able to deal with your anger a lot easier. You know how to deal with it once you've gotten a little older. Inspiring? My life is disappearing. All of my 20s are gone. Half of my 30s are gone. Should I ever get released, I will have to start at a time when most people are settling down. I'm losing my life. I have to survive. I have to survive because if I break down and become insane, or if I break down and still stay uneducated, or let whatever talent I may have go to waste, then wouldn't you say that they win? They break me. They can keep me locked up, but mentally I'm not locked up. I refuse to allow them to lock me up mentally. My parents would be enjoying their golden years and my siblings would be enjoying their lives. I live with the guilt and shame that my actions caused the deaths of my loved ones and destroyed the lives of so many others, including my own. I do not know any of my cousins, aunts, or uncles very well, but because they are family and some of the only family I have, I have prayed for them to find it in their hearts to forgive me and accept me as part of the family, but I never had the opportunity to talk to them about this tragedy. I wake every single day praying that this would have all been a dream. It still seems so unreal to me that I was capable of such an act upon my own family. 
If my execution would bring them back, or even just one of them, I would not be asking for mercy here today. I am far from the troubled child and drug user that I was 17 years ago. I hope they have forgiven me and do not want to see me executed, which would only add more tragedy to my family because another member is killed. Some of his relatives were unwavering in their demand that Odell be put to death for his crimes, but his grandmother, Evelyn Eller, wrote to the board in his defense. I know he has done a terrible thing. I believe he deserves to be punished, and he should spend the rest of his life in prison, but I do not want him to die. He has gone through a lot of changes while he has been in prison. He has grown up a lot. He writes to me and always sends me birthday, Christmas, and other holiday cards. I look forward to hearing from him and talking to him. Tom has come to mean a lot to me. I love him, and I don't want him to die. Please, spare his life. Tom's petition for clemency was submitted in concert with petitions written on behalf of all Illinois death row inmates as part of a strategy to persuade the governor to commute some or all of the death sentences. Clemency was initially denied, but ultimately history would intercede in the life of Tom Odell. Shortly after he declared a moratorium on executions, Governor George Ryan appointed a 14-member commission on capital punishment to study the flawed criminal justice system in Illinois that sentenced 13 innocent men to death. One year later, the Illinois General Assembly approved the Capital Litigation Trust Fund to provide defense attorneys with funds to hire and pay independent investigators and forensic experts in capital murder cases. As Ryan continued to wrestle with his conscience over the moratorium on executions, he was contacted by Pope John Paul II, who encouraged the governor to, quote, take another step in the defense of life by commuting all death sentences into life in prison without the possibility of parole, end quote. In September of 2002, the Chicago Sun-Times published an editorial opposing the commutation of all death row inmates, insisting that blanket clemency, quote, ignores the reality that each case must stand on its own facts, end quote. On January 1st, 2003, 167 men and women resided on death row in Illinois. Among these individuals were some of the most reprehensible and violent killers in the state's 185-year history. During the first two weeks of 2003, Ryan was contacted by Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu. Both leaders urged him to commute the death sentences of all men and women on death row in Illinois. On January 10, 2003, Ryan pardoned four death row prisoners. The next day, in an internationally televised event, Governor Ryan commuted the sentences of 163 men and women on death row to life without parole, and of four others to 40 years. The apparent motives behind the murders committed by the 167 individuals on death row were diverse. Of the death row inmates whose death sentences Ryan commuted, one case is clearly unique but only one case among the 167 individuals who were granted clemency by the governor of Illinois involved the mass murder of a family. That inmate was Tom Odell. 1985 Revisited Lawrence Jekyll, a forensic psychiatrist, was a key witness in Tom's murder trial. 
Dr. Jekyll is the court-appointed psychiatrist who conducted a pre-trial psychiatric examination of Tom on December 2nd, 1985. Twenty-four years later, Dr. Jekyll recalled his first meeting with Tom and his impression of the young murder defendant and his crimes. I remember it was obviously a horrific crime. My lasting impression of him as being hulking and frightening. It may have been that I was a younger psychiatrist, but I found him frightening, and I found the way he described how he and his brother were being chained up. There was a wild dog quality to all of this. Here's this kid and his brother being treated like wild animals, and yet the mother is president of the PTA. So much of him talking about his brother was actually talking about himself. You know, what he couldn't talk about with regard to himself, he would talk about vis-a-vis -vis the brother. I think this was an act of rage. That's really the center of his thoughts and associations, even though it's displaced onto the brother. And that seemed consistent with everything. And if you read it that way, it's very understandable. He may lie about details, but the essence of his experience comes through, and it's pretty clear. I believe the fundamental thing that drove all of this was the mental abuse and the feeling that he was unprotected. The betrayal by the father. In other words, the mother was abusive, but then the father didn't protect. I believe those psychological stances are fundamental, but I think being tormented by her and then being unprotected, I think, is the core. Particularly the failure to be protected by the father because, in my experience, that can enrage boys more than the abuse by the mother. The physical abuse clearly shows the depth of it, but just the atmosphere of abuse, and then you don't know what to do, and then there's no protection. There's no person to turn to. And the secretiveness, the stuff being kept behind four walls, it's a concentration camp is what it is. The helplessness and rage just builds and builds and builds to this crescendo, and he needs to understand that he was all alone in that, and because it was hidden, how could others help him? It just piles on top, and he had nowhere to go. Henry Conra was also a key witness in Tom's trial. Dr. Conra, a forensic psychiatrist who was an expert witness for the defense, conducted a pre-trial psychiatric examination of Tom on December 9, 1985, one week following Jekyll's evaluation. Twenty-four years later, Dr. Conra recalled his first meeting with Tom. It was in the early part of my forensic career, and I had never encountered a crime of this sort. My first response was one of scientific interest, curiosity, professional growth, more of a detached attitude. There was one thing that sort of changed my detachment, even before I saw Tom. It was the DCFS records about Sean. It was really rather horrendous about him being chained and locked out of the refrigerator. And somehow I found myself, in a bizarre way, even before I saw Tom, feeling, I hate to use the word sympathy, but feeling a glimmer of empathy. So I went from this detachment to feeling that something was amiss here. So that shifted me from looking at this like a butterfly on a pin to feeling perhaps really drawn in, feeling that I could show some empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. Then when I saw Tom in the Cook County Jail, it was a rather unique experience. I don't think I've ever experienced anything like it again. As Tom was relating these incidents, I felt nauseated. Now, I've had people tell me about some very terrible things that they've done, and he wasn't cold when he said it, and in fact, he was somewhat scared, somewhat depressed, tearful at times. But it was the methodical manner in which he committed these murders, including his siblings, people who he 
said he cared for, and probably did to some degree. Maybe because he was in the Cook County Jail, he was scared. Sometimes there's a bravado that a defendant will show. He certainly did not show that. And I felt he was like a young, trembling kid. Then, I felt some sympathy for him. But at the same time, I felt revulsion at what he'd done. It was a horrendous crime. I didn't want to blame the victims, that's always a danger, but something like this, that's so out of the ordinary? It wasn't like he just went on a rampage, rather it was a step-by-step -step sequence, interrupted by smoking some pot and going out with some friends. It would be very hard for a jury to feel either sympathy or empathy for someone like that. In Tom's case, was this guy just evil? Okay, he did something evil, but when we look at it, this didn't happen in a vacuum. I'm not gonna say that Tom just made a mistake, because it's obviously much more than that. You know, kids model their behavior on their parents. I found it very difficult to sympathize or empathize with her. To say that Sean was so unmanageable that you had to chain him to a bed? It's sort of outside the realm of being able to understand just as it's outside the realm of understanding what Tom did. You know, this wasn't as if she just lost it and slapped him. Rather, it was all very methodical. And I'm not saying that A led to B, but when that is allowable in a home, then the usual boundaries of civility and treatment of other people are somehow or other impaired. Again, it had the veneer of a regular middle-class house, hard-working middle-class family, but when there are those types of things that are permissible, where they're allowed and sanctioned, somebody vulnerable like Tom will be affected. If you're sadistic toward your own kid, then his sadism toward his own family seems to lower the barriers. Now, there are clearly other households with abuse in which this kind of thing doesn't happen, but we're talking about Tom and his vulnerability as one factor that lowers the bar. I guess I see this as an act of total destruction of the family, including himself, because he knew he would be captured. I think he felt that his life had essentially ended when he was thrown out of the house. That was the abandonment. And then his life, it was over when he killed his two parents. At that point, he just brought down the whole structure. I think it's hard for us to understand because most of us would say, Oh my god, what have I done? But people in this state of nihilism? They're just gonna take everything down with them, including themselves. I think what's different is that he didn't really try to defend himself or excuse himself. He told me it was like seeing a movie. And it was like he was taking me through it scene by scene. And you know, I knew where it was going, but there was something about that. He was just a slight kid who seemed scared. and. He was tearful, but they weren't tears of, oh, feel sorry for me. That's why he didn't seem sociopathic or antisocial. Obviously what he did was cold-blooded, but I didn't sense the cold-bloodedness in him. It's sort of interesting and sort of confusing. You want to condemn the guy because, okay, you did your parents, but why your siblings? And I didn't feel that he was trying to get sympathy from me or anything like that because that falls flat. There was some genuine, maybe remorse for what he'd done, but yet he did it. And the way in which he did it says something about it too. It's interesting that it wasn't until his death sentence was commuted that he tried to find some sort of meaning in what had happened or, or tried to make sense of what had happened. Not when death was facing him, 
but when life was facing him. For nearly 18 years, I had simply pushed everything to the back of my mind while lifting weights, playing basketball, getting drunk, watching TV, and listening to the radio. It was time to face my fears and demons. I slowly dissected my actions in my life. This book is about my final stage of analysis, which now leads me on to a more progressive life. I recently graduated from college and am looking forward to further education as much as circumstances allow because educated people make educated decisions, and never again do I want to find myself in this or any similar situation.